this week we'll talk about dataset creation and annotation and creation, curation, annotation. And we have a special guest today, Chris. So Chris has six years of experience delivering natural language processing tools and services. So including emails, compliance, pharma, sales industry. So he has a lot of experience. And I had a, a chat with Chris a while ago and we got to talk about this topic and I understood how much we do not talk about these things. So we usually talk about models. We usually talk about things like, okay, we have a model. How do we deploy this model? But we usually don't spend enough time talking about dataset creation. And we thought that it would be a good idea to record something about this. That's why we have Chris today with us. Hi, Chris. Hello, Alexa. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. And, and thank you for inviting me. Before we go into our main topic of dataset creation and curation, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yeah. So I studied AI in the University of Edinburgh. And I fell in love with natural language processing while I was there. I think it's extremely interesting. How can a computer understand language from a philosophical perspective? I, I think it's a, it's a really, really interesting question. And throughout my career, I've just been trying to work on this question and, and see, you know, what kind of understanding can we give a computer? What kind of automated decision making can we do? So after finishing my studies, I worked for a small email provider where I worked on extracting different information from emails and email classifications. Then I worked at, at Resolver, which is a large complaint company that had over 10 million complaints in the UK and worked extremely close, closely with complaint departments and even the complaint authorities in the UK. So it was very interesting from that type of regulatory perspective. After Resolver, I worked for, for two years at Helex, which is a rare disease drug development company that focuses on rare diseases and using machine learning techniques to identify drug candidates to take to the market for patients who, who have rare conditions. So that was really interesting in, in introducing me to the whole world of bioNLP, where there's way more data sets than I think other NLP areas have due to high levels of curation, but they have their own, own challenges due to the ambiguity of uh, biology added on top of the ambiguity of natural language. And, and finally, my journey led me to to co-found Comtura, which is my own company, where we, we work on, on making sure that you don't need to administer your sales force. So we help sales teams capture useful information from, from sales calls, and then we, we extract all the useful concepts and push them into Salesforce for you using our, our interface. I think one of the key takeaways I had from, from working at Helix is, is some of these technologies are extremely challenging when you, you need to apply them in a safety critical environment like like drug development and so i'm i've been enjoying the less pressure required in the sales environment because you know at the end of the day patients lives aren't at risk for for your your decisions that you're making and whether a deal will, will come through or not but sales processes are also extremely interesting from an nlp perspective as there's a lot of communication going on now what led you to actually start this company like what kind of problems did you see that you realized that okay now it's time to start this company so i'm a massive data nerd as you can tell by the topic of this conversation i love to think about how do you create data sets and actually this was a huge huge reason i i like the idea of contour because it, it contour intersects 
with, with transcription technology and CRM technology. So we capture what is said in the trenches, what is said during the calls, and we help push that into, into Salesforce, into the CRM where a business stores all its commercial intelligence. So it's, it's extremely interesting because you, from a supervised machine learning perspective, almost you've got the labels and the, the supervised stuff in, in the CRM, and you've got the unlabeled source data in the transcripts potentially. And there's a number of other views you can do this from a, from a machine learning perspective. So I was like, this is awesome. There's so much data available here. There's a huge impact potentially on sales teams as well. Like selling is extremely hard, like, you know, building up the connections and actually making sure it's a, it's, a, it's a good relationship. So the whole workflow is is very difficult when you need to capture pages of information during a sales call and you also need to build up a relationship. So the idea was like, you know, why don't we do things that computers are good at capturing information and let people focus on building relationships and, and selling better. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned like that there is so much data available, but it's sometimes the case that we have data in abundance, but we don't really know like uh, what is there, how to process this data, how useful this data is. And we need to somehow curate this data to make use of this, to somehow understand what is good, what is bad there. So what are usual ways we collect and curate data? So I like to think about it in, in like three general terms of data set creation, let's say. So automated, manual, and hybrid. So in an automated form, you may scrape, for example, some kind of database or, or a number of websites to collect some, some data automatically. In a manual approach, you may have a number of documents, such as, as sales transcripts, for example, and you decide to annotate key sales concepts from them. And in a hybrid approach, which is, I think, becoming more and more trendy in our industry currently, you mix these two together. So you use the, the power and scale that automation can bring you to make sure that your manual efforts are focused on the most valuable, valuable data. So first you do some annotation manually. So for example, you said uh, the sales call, right? So we record the call, we make a transcript, and then somebody needs to go there and say, okay, like, I, I don't know what exactly you do there, but like maybe this part should be I don't know, it's a good uh, indicator that the sale will close or, well, I'm just making this up. So first you do this manually, right? And then you train a model such that next time it kind of already recognizes these clues in the transcript. And then you can train another one based on the data you collect, because maybe a person can review this, this and say, okay, this is accurate, this is not accurate. So you refine your data set right? and over time, your model becomes better and better, and your data set becomes better and better. Do they get this right? Yeah, I think this is like the bottom-up view. But I think the, the top-down view is, I think, what, what most data scientists struggle with, actually. And I think I've made most of my mistakes from having this kind of bottom-up view rather than a more top-down view of this. So I think it's really important to kind of manage upwards, and it's an extremely important skill to develop. And the way I would, I would tie that back to data set creation is like, you know, what's the business value that this, this data set creation will empower? Usually, if you create the data set, there's going to be model deployment, and it will realize some kind of business value for you. And I think, I think what's really hard is that until you have the data and until you have the model deployment, you can't really know whether the business value will be realized, right? So, so that's why this is a high-risk enterprise, fundamentally. And I think what's really important is de-risking this by, by having, you know, when I do my initial, my initial annotation, 
I've shared that with CEOs and other execs when I, when I do that. And I will literally walk them through this. Like, this is literally our source data. Do you think if we could automatically map it in some way or do some transformation on this, do you think this would be valuable? So I personally think the hidden art in dataset creation is actually there's, there's a huge like, stakeholder management piece in it, actually. And this goes back into this, like defining the business problem you're trying to solve and defining the conceptual framework of how you're solving that. So for example, for, for the sales classification, let's, let's say that we've got a sales call and we're going to try and decide whether the deal is going to win or lose. Is this going to be a successful call or not? So then the next step for me would be like to think about what are the concepts a salesperson would be thinking about in this? Let's say they would be using qualification methodologies. They would have a number of ways they work through in breaking down the data into understandable chunks. And which parts of these would be then kind of mappable on, on to, into machine learning systems? So, so, you know, are we looking at on, on a named entity level? Are we looking at a document level, paragraph level? What is our, our unit of, of, of work that we're going to look at? And then I think the really important bit is, is having this kind of prototype idea. So this is where I think I've done things wrong, that I just love building things and I'll just start building. And I'm like, okay, you know, let's build it. Let's do the modeling. It's so much fun. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, like it it's the reason we do this work. And I just don't spend enough time on this initial bit where I find sharing even the first couple forms of labeled data through, I don't know, Displacy, for example, where you can actually show like a document annotated with the labels on it. If you share something like this with other execs or, or you share this upwards in the initial stage of a project, I find that that really helps in, in getting some, some amazing insights and in how to break down the problem from people who have huge experience in these areas. So I think stakeholder management is this kind of hidden conceptual important thing. And in general, the other aspect is also from a bottom-up view, there can be also a process challenge. So this goes back to how do you define the, the atomic elements of your problem? And okay, let's say, let's assume we're doing some name entity recognition. We're going to extract like sales concepts. So there, what, what you're going to have as a challenge is, is that these concepts, what you came up with initially, it won't cover everything. At least I've never come up with them that they cover everything. Almost always, some of them are going to be wrong. Some of them are like blind spots I didn't even think about. And the thing that you're going to need there from a process perspective is how do you adapt to that? How do you, you know, can your, your model or your system adapt to new concepts appearing, to, to new things of interest appearing? And I think, again, the really important thing to manage this is a process, actually, a human-centric process, in my, my opinion. So I, I like to have an annotation booklet, which is just a document that has all of your the tasks that you're working on. It has some task definitions where we try and, and describe these concepts. We collect all of the ambiguous samples there. And then what we can do is we, we talk over those, both with, with the machine learning team and also annotators, we talk about ambiguity. So, so we, we want to talk about these ambiguous cases and we collect them, we review them, and hopefully we refine the task and the conceptual framework that we can reduce ambiguity. So I, I find that is, is super important. And then this booklet is part of a review process. So where the annotation process would be reviewed each time. So my annotation process is I will annotate the data. So I will, I will have some process to, to generate labeled data. Then my next step is I will review that. So I will have some kind of quality control on top of it. I think key parts of that would be like inter-annotator agreement. So I understand annotator performance. Then I will have some metrics around my model performance. But then I also will have actually feedback sessions with the annotators, ideally, where I can actually get their views back 
on like what was tricky, what was hard, and have that information flow to learn from it. This is one of the reasons I much prefer in-house annotation actually to crowdsourcing. But I think crowdsourcing can be awesome as well. And in particular, when you're setting up like a proof of concept or a prototype, you can get a crowdsourcing solution like Mechanical Turk to scale up real fast. But the cost of that, in my experience, is a quality and actually even a cost. So, so it will cost you more, I would say, for getting high quality data. And it wouldn't be as good quality as potentially using in-house annotation. Long term, I much, much prefer in-house annotation because the key advantage in my, my experience is that annotators who do a really good job are valuable and they can build up both kind of institutional knowledge, but also their insights, their views. And if they're productive, their productivity is extremely valuable. So one of the key advantages of in-house data annotation is that you, you can keep that relationship and you can keep, keep it kind of alive and nurture that relationship with your annotators. Yeah, that was uh, quite a lot to unpack, a lot of information. So let me try to summarize probably uh, just a few of the very important bits. So when it comes to process of actually collecting data, so we first of all need to have the process, right? So the process is first we might start with external annotators, so to, to do some proof of concept, but then we should prefer internal annotators eventually because we can come and sit closely to them and talk to them. And the process should be, so annotators annotate the data, you also annotate the data, and you collect some data, and then you monitor how good they do this, right? So you need to have some sort of metrics, like how well they do the annotation, and then finally you need to sit with them and say, what was difficult? Like what in this process was difficult? Right? So this is how we do this, right? And then at the end, we probably save the results somewhere in a database, right? Or something like this. And then you mentioned, like before you start this process, before you go to external like crowdsourcing platform, before you start working with internal annotators, you need to think what exactly you're doing, right? What exactly you're annotating. So you need to talk to somebody like domain experts, C-level people, right? And have them walk through this problem of annotating with you, right? So you understand what they want, they understand what you want from them, right? So you kind of now understand the value in this process. Yeah, sorry. I think that was, was definitely quite a bit. So, so yeah, I, the first point was definitely this pitch process, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, you will need some executives to kind of be your patrons and, and push your project. And most machine learning projects are big ticket items overall. Like they, in my experience, cost between 500,000 to a million pounds. Like if you, if you consider everything over a year, let's say. So there's always some executives who are highly invested in, in this project. And I think managing upwards there can be a real superpower for your career, and it will lead you to better data set as well. <laughs> and also you mentioned this annotation booklet, or was yeah. a booklet, right? So where you collect ambiguous samples. So I guess this feedback step, when you sit uh, with annotators and you ask them what was difficult, and then say, you know, like this thing was tricky. I didn't really understand how to label this particular piece of text, right? And then what you do is you take this thing and you put this, I don't know, is it some sort of Google document or how does it look like? Yeah, it's just a collaborative Google document where we, we just keep track of this kind of data state. Mm -hmm. And what do you do with this? So you collected these tricky examples and what do you do? Like, do you say like, next time you come across an example like this, this is how you should label or? 
Exactly. How to use it. I find the, the useful thing in this is trying to understand why is this ambiguous in a kind of conceptual level. So like sometimes things can be two things at the same time. You just don't have a choice. And, and either label is correct, actually. And you just have to admit it and you, and you just have to live with it and deal with it. But sometimes it can be that, that you, you may actually need to break things down a little bit more or you need to refine your task labels. So, for example, back at Resolver, we, we did a lot of labeling of complaints in different categories and complaints. And at one point, I think we had 21 different labels for labeling complaint documents, 21 labels. You have a huge attention fatigue there, right? So, so nobody can label 21 things. I don't think I can keep 21 things in my mind at the same time while reading a document and doing some other stuff. You know, very difficult for me. So that was just an example of something that we did pretty poorly. We just wanted to try it, actually. And we, we tried different distributions. Like, what was the ideal number of labels when we have a huge number of labels for document classification, for example? And I think it was between four and seven, actually, depending on, on what we wanted and, and what sort of accuracy we wanted. That, that's what we found. And I think that the whole point of this process is that, you know, your annotation process is something that you should iterate on. And this booklet is kind of like your problem list or your homework <laughs> that you need to fix. So, so the, this is your homework. Sometimes you need to admit defeat and be like, you know, it's ambiguous. I can't. Okay, sorry, this is it. But other times I find there's, there is some conceptual work that you can do or maybe improve the UI. Maybe you could uh, use some active learning and pre-label the documents. You know, there's a number of, of kind of process iterations that you could do there to break things down. And this pre-labeling, I think I saw a tool that is doing like uh, something like this. So, so correct me if I'm wrong. So we present a piece of document and we ask annotators to label it, right? So it can be like a part from the sales call. And we say, okay, do you think like based on the chunk you see, do you think the deal was closed or not, right? And we already say, we think that maybe this thing led to closing. Do you agree with this or not? Right? So that would be like this uh, pre-labeling. Yeah, I think in general, you could do it like that, for example, with an interpretability layer where you do some document classification and you will expose your interpretability layer to help people agree with the model or disagree. Mm -hmm. um, I think, for example, where it, this pre-labeling adds a mass, massively can simplify things is named entity recognition, where, where potentially having to just review them quickly can have advantages. But obviously, the devil's always in the details. And, and when you pre-label things, then things that aren't pre-labeled are much less likely to get labeled. So it's almost like each decision you make in your dataset creation process, that there is some trade-offs going on there. And what I've learned is that you just need to run experiments. At the end of, end of the day, like, like often your assumptions can be wrong. Sometimes, let's say, if there are highly valuable but kind of rare samples in your data set then you will need to do a lot more experiments i think and, and common sense can help you less because of the nature of your data set if you're not focusing so much on outliers which are extremely hard to actually label then i think pre-labeling can benefit you but sometimes it, it doesn't <laughs> you know it, it also depends on your model kind of <laughs> now i want to take a step back and talk again about this data set creation process we talked a bit about this and you mentioned that we first need to get uh, domain experts and execs on board, work with them. And then you said like how the process should be organized, like you start annotating data, then review, then get feedback. But before we can actually start annotating the data, we should think about what is the task, what people need to do. And I think from my experience using crowdsourcing, 
the quality of the data you get highly depends on how well you define the task, right? So maybe we can talk a bit about this. So like, how does the process of collecting a data set actually looks like, like after we talk to execs and so on, like how do we take this and create something that we can give to annotators? This is a key insight. I think the really good thing is that the way I see it is, is experts and, and execs kind of give you a blueprint. Because you have a proposal document and you, you will ideally interview some experts as well to find out how do they actually do it or how do they think about this. So what I find, it's a translation problem. My interviews, for example, with the experts and I, I try and figure out what levels can I break that down into. So for example, for, for sales modeling, maybe I will take some qualification methodologies that are like about the pain points of the customers or about, about different attributes of the customers. And I will be thinking like, okay, what would this be as a task? What would this look like as a task? And I think, I think this is why actually having this kind of business guidance is a huge benefit. Because when you have to annotate the data yourself, which I think every one of us should do a lot of when, when starting a project, then you, you realize that something's going to be quite tricky. And I think it's important to communicate clearly before you get Stockholm syndrome from your own project. Because after you've worked on something for a year or, or six months, it's very clear to kind of assume that, that your assumptions are correct and you're going in the right direction, kind of. But that's why this, these initial conversations are so powerful. Because it's literally how experts have explained it to you, how things are. So maybe you can use the same already working explanation to explain how things are to, to annotators or who will need to actually create this data for you. Yeah, how do you capture this? Because I guess when expert tells you this and your record, it's like a wall of text, like it's a lot, right? You somehow need to process this and summarize it. And how do you do this? So I find what works really well for me is I will run interviews with the experts where I, I collect this wall of text. And then I think it's really good to come up with a mind map where you just unfold the concepts. I really like this, this idea of, of thinking this in, in conceptual terms. And I think it's a bit of a blind spot in data science sometimes that we really like maths, we really like programming, and sometimes we less like the communication aspect of this, that, and there is one. So then I come up with this mind map where I'm like, okay, these are, let's say, my ideas of building blocks, and this is how they associate back. And it doesn't have to be, you know, for example, the, the sales, let's say we're, we're doing some sales qualification stuff, and I'm extracting these, these sales qualification attributes, and these are my building blocks. My model may just work on text, you know, it may just work on the whole text, and I'm not going to do any name entity recognition. But maybe my interpretability layer can have some insights you know, that would be a massive win if they can be associated somehow with the qualification methodology, for example. So this mind map isn't like a way to chain us down, but it's more of a way for us to, I think, to think about how, how is this actually built up conceptually. And, and the really powerful thing, I think, if you have this mind map, which then you, you make in the slides or, or, you know, a short document, is that this is going to be the basis of my annotation booklet. And when I do a kickoff, actually, Often it may just be like a slide-based kickoff with, with the annotators. And I, I want to actually maybe get some... So when I, I worked with some quite experienced annotators, I want their views on what they think will be tricky about this. What could be the, the risks in this? So, so this is obviously 
more of a scenario where you've got more domain expertise involved. So, so for example, in BioNLP, you definitely need to involve curators a lot more. You, you've got a whole level of expert consultation layer on top of this, or at this stage there. And there, I think it's a lot more difficult as well because there's no clear answers. So my mind map won't necessarily how to distinguish some genes and proteins, for example, between each other. It's probably not going to be enough for that. But then in that case, I think it's more about having some product managers who can also help manage some of the, these technical challenges and actually make them you know, into the roadmap. And, and it kind of becomes a little bit of a product challenge, I think, which is, is extremely hard. But this conceptual framework and a mind map, I think, can take you quite far ahead and just being like, you know, it's not so simple that just words are enough or just a kind of not so good document. You know, like just make some slides, some pictures. It's an economic thing as well. The more your annotators understand what you're doing, the better work they will do. And you're, you're going to increase your chances of succeeding. So in summary, so first we talk to domain experts and we have them annotate the data. We interview with them. We watch how exactly they annotate and we record everything. And then we build a mind map and we try to annotate the data ourselves, right? So to really, uh, make sure that we understood them, like what are the tricky cases we see ourselves? Maybe we can go back to the experts and see, okay, what do you think about this one? I'm not sure. So you, this way you extract the knowledge from them and then you put them in a mind map. And then now it's your turn to share this mind map and this knowledge you extracted from experts with the annotators, right? And then annotators probably go through a similar process that as you just did when learning from experts and then the process starts right yes i mean in my experience experts outside of of bioNLP is usually not the experts who would do the annotation mm -hmm. i would do the initial annotation so okay, okay. It's, it's usually difficult to maybe to get sales leaders to do annotation for you or mm -hmm. other domain experts so there i it's more that I run an interview with them than I do some basic annotation myself. And then maybe I'll even send them a document and be like, hey, this is based on what you told me. This is how I think. These are where the concepts are that you described. This is where I see them. And obviously, I'm not going to do as good a job as somebody who's professional at this to, to identify these concepts. But it also gives me potentially a good idea of, of what's achievable as well. The experts are, let's say, above me in the quality of their output. Usually I'm above or, or the same level as the annotators. That also gives you a good idea of, of what's achievable and gives you this kind of human level baseline before you, you start into this project. And I think that's that's really important way of, of de-risking things as well. Because if you can use this, this human level baseline to then, and, and the real hard thing then I think is tying that back to the business value. Like, you know, now we've got a human level baseline. We, we're almost ready to start the project. We've got an executive who's, who's happy to support us. We've got a conceptual overview. We've kind of got an idea how we're going to get the data. But then, then comes the next leap, which is kind of like, what is good data? How do we tie this back to the business value? And I think this is extremely difficult. <laughs> um, my approach here is trying to come up with a prototype. And this is why I think sharing even is some form of annotation or, or some form of data visualization of the human baseline is so powerful. So I want to share that start managing the expectations of what's achievable from the project and also to get support from the business leaders as well around how could I translate this to business value. I want to see where they see this could add value already in the beginning, even before I have my model deployment. So the way I understood you is uh, 
So humans make mistakes, right? When annotating it, it's inevitable. So there will be some accuracy that humans can provide. And usually experts are most accurate than you and annotators are less accurate. And then you have this data with some inaccuracies. And then perhaps you, like, I don't know, for this sales qualification task, let's say human annotators are 70% correct. Right? And then you can come back to the experts and say, okay, like if our system is 70% correct, do you think it will be useful for the business or not, right? Exactly. I think this process is still qualitative and more kind of consultative. So what I would do is actually take some examples mm-hmm. of usually what I've done. Actually, that's the level where I do this. Is I'll come up with my own, my own, like here's literally a transcription that is annotated and in a nice, easy to read way. And I will send it to them and ask them to read it and look at it and share their thoughts ideally. Like, what do they think? Because sometimes, you know, the feedback could be like, hey, hey, Chris, this is, is okay, but, but you're missing three concepts here. You know, like if I was just focusing on these two things, I don't think I would be able to do this at all. It can be something like that. Or another thing can also be like, oh, this is really interesting, actually. Like, if our customer support people had access to, to this level of tagging, for example, maybe we could, we could speed up like complaint resolution by 5%. Like, this is really exciting. And this could be a track where we can provide value with this feature. Okay, so not only you understand if it's useful for business, but you can also get some insights how exactly it will be useful. Maybe it's different from what you initially thought, right? Yeah, in my experience, there's almost always some, you know, new emergent ideas that, that come along. And uh, we talked a bit about this annotation booklet, and you mentioned that we put tricky examples there. But then you also said that, I think it was like when we start this process, we give this booklet to the annotators. So my understanding is that these tricky examples is not the only part that we put in the booklet, right? So we probably put the entire task definition, we give examples, right? We give this mind map that we talked about, right? So what, what else do we put there? Exactly. So the booklet, the way I see it, is it's a complete guide to be as productive as possible in annotation process. So the objective there is to empower annotators to do as good a job as possible. And I think, I think this is a very important mindset in data creation, to have empathy towards annotation. It's a hard job. It's really difficult. And to, to really think about, okay, how can I make this easier? How can I make this work better? And the booklet for, for me is this, this living document that has, you know, what the task is. How do we actually conceptually think about this? Like, why is this, this the kind of thing we're, we're interested in? And, and the third bit is, is kind of more the craft aspect. So here are ambiguous, ambiguous ones. I think it's also important to allow it in a way for annotators to potentially, annotators may share notes, for example, when they're doing annotation. And then you or a project manager can collect those notes into this annotator booklet, and then you, you periodically review it. So you would review them initially, and then you, you would have kind of debrief with the, your annotation team where you could discuss like, what are the insights from this or what are the changes that you're going to do to kind of react to that. Now, I think this is really important because when annotators feel that they're listened to, it's very important in a work relationship. You know, it can be a lot easier to work together now. And uh, you mentioned this, how can I make it easier for annotators? Like a booklet is a way to make it easier. And I think for me personally, like I remember when I needed to do something like this and involve annotators from the company where I worked, I would do this myself and then see where it's not easy. Because I think this is what we data scientists sometimes don't do. 
or don't do enough is trying to how do you call it eat your own dog food right like try to put yourself in the shoes of the annotators and then feel the struggles of how boring it is how many actions you need to do to annotate a piece of text and then to think okay how can i actually make it faster so maybe instead of using mouse a lot maybe you can just click a button right a key button like on your keyboard and things like this right so this is when you get insights when you try to do this right i guess you also came to do a similar observation yeah i think annotation user experience is massive and it's also measurable so i'm a huge fan of, of actually you know th this whole annotation process you can have a very quantitative and data-based approach to how you measure the impact of these things and for example at resolver we use prodigy uh, spaces on annotation mm -hmm. interface which has one of these beneficial aspects. It has hotkeys, for example, for doing quick acceptances of name entities or, or even classifications. So it makes it a lot easier with, with the UX. And we would see potentially 5 to 10% improvements in, in how many data samples we could get from an annotator in a day by iteratively improving the, the UX so for, from going for like a better user experience there. So I'd say there's three kind of metrics that are really important to keep track of. So the one that I've already said is inter-annotator agreement. I think maybe one of the most important ones, because if there's very low inter-annotator agreement, it means your task is very ambiguous and, and people have no idea what, what they're doing, or it's just a very difficult task and, and you may need to re-figure out what you're doing. I think the second metric that's, that's quite important is like, okay, how many samples of data can you get from from annotators in a unit of time in, let's say, eight hours, for example. So I think it's important to keep track of this to, to make sure that the performance is, is on track there. I think one of the difficult things to model there is fatigue as well. Because again, when, when people are doing crowdsourced annotation, they may do like a 10, 12-hour shift of, of mechanical turking, let's say. And, and by the hour nine... Even if you did for yourself, if you do 12 hours of annotation a day, I'm going to have very strong questions about the last three hours of your annotation and the, the output from there. So modeling fatigue can be a challenge there, but you, know, you, you can track that as well if you look at the rate of data and look at the rate of the quality of the data, but it's a bit, bit harder, I think. And I think that the final piece is probably real-time model metrics around, around performance. What we did at Resolver that I thought was, was quite clever is we would do a split of the data where we would leave out particular annotators' data sets and we would test on those, for example, and see how well would our models generalize the different splits of annotators' data, like in, in different time periods. So the, the idea here was that we would look at, after a while, we had some concerns that some annotators were annotating things very differently. And this was something that emerged. We did a project around identifying these identifying vulnerable consumers who are, are most at risk when they're making a complaint. Well, some annotators were thinking like winter is a real problem and it is a huge problem. And this was actually one of our big blind spots that we discovered through the annotators is that in winter in the UK heating, so for example, your boiler breaks, it's extremely difficult, obviously, like you're going to freeze to death if nothing happens. So extremely vulnerable situation, top priority needs a lot of focus and attention from companies. And companies do have specific departments for this, actually, and teams to work with these type of consumers. But it's often, we didn't expect it to be such a huge percentage of our vulnerable uh, complaints. So it was more than 10%. And we found this because there was a particular annotator who was more focused on this and who would then share these views with us. It was also 
what led us to actually find this is that we did periodic qualitative looks as well. So we would periodically read about 100 annotations a week by different people so that we would get an idea of like, what are people picking up? Kind of what are they looking at? So I think eyeballing the data is extremely important. And all of that would be very hard for me to do if I didn't start the whole process with what you said as well. Like say, it's like myself doing a lot of annotation. I myself, I, I think when I start a project, I do about, it really depends, but between 500 and 1,000 data points, let's say. And that's usually the point where I get somebody external involved, like other than myself which is brutal, I have to say. I find it very difficult doing that 500 to 1,000 samples, but very valuable. And uh, we talked a bit about, was it pre-filling some of the suggestions? And uh, even at the beginning, I talked a bit about this active learning, like when you all collect a bit of data, then you train your model, then you show this to annotators, and then you iterate. So maybe we can talk about these things. So one thing I wanted to ask you about active learning, like how do you think it's helpful in dataset collection? So active learning, I think, can really work. It can help you massively reduce the data amounts that you require. But sometimes it can be, it can be quite uh, less impressive as well, in my experience. So the, the general idea in active learning is that you get model predictions and you take low you sample low confidence model predictions or model predictions on the decision boundary, and then you will annotate those, and that will help push the model in the right direction. So the model is keeps training while you're you're feeding it this data. This is one of these hybrid data collection approaches. So in my experience, it hasn't worked extremely well so far, and or maybe it was hyped up a lot when I started using active learning, and I was surprised by the smaller impact than I expected. So when it's worked for me, it was usually about 20% less data required than without active learning when it worked. But the, the problem I've had, let's say, and 20% is fantastic still. So maybe it's just kind of my dreamlike expectations, but I, I honestly thought it would be a much larger kind of force multiplier. I thought it would like be a complete game changer, let's say. Mm -hmm. And sadly, I think active learning is not a complete game changer. But it can work sometimes extremely well, and other times it kind of falls on its face a bit. Mm -hmm. And then there is another thing called distance supervision. So can you tell us about this thing? What is it? Yeah, so distance supervision, that is a game changer, I think, actually. So distance supervision is the paradigm where data creation is moving towards. So what distance supervision is, is when you can use some kind of programmatic approach to generate weak labels for your data set. And then what you can do is you can either fine-tune your model straight away based on that, or you may decide to sample from that collection of weak labels. So for example, at Resolver, what we, we did is we had a, a semi-supervised topic model, and we would sample vulnerable complaints from there. That was a force multiplier. It led to, to requiring 10 times less data for finding vulnerable consumers. So it was a huge force multiplier. And, and today, this technology has matured even more. So there's tools like Snorkel, for example, where you can define these labeling functions. And you, you can use Snorkel has, for example, integration with Spacey. So, so that's quite useful. You can define, I don't know, name entity-based labeling functions. So if there's a location in this document, then you may want to say, like I don't know, it has location, for example, even something like that. So then what you do is you create all of these kind of weak labels 
And then what Snorkel does is it will create a clever weighing on top of that to see how that aligns with the actual labels that you want to generate. So some combinations of these labels will be more successful than others. And I think this technology is extremely powerful because it kind of allows domain experts and annotators to have a much wider range in doing this. Because when you come up with a labeling function, it may affect 2 to 3% of your data per labeling function. That's amazing, actually. So you're using a, a much broader net to kind of collect your data then. And the quality that you're collecting is, is lower, though, still. So you will still need to do some more traditional annotation, or maybe a subset of the data, maybe even on data out of your distance supervision distribution, because you may have some biases there as well that you're introducing with this. But I think uh, distance supervision is a huge force multiplier in the industry currently. And it, it's, it's one of those things that, that really empowers you to, to get more done with limited time and a limited budget. So you mentioned one of these sources for weak labeling is topic modeling. So like, let's say we have a huge pile of uh, unlabeled text, right? So a lot of texts could be these uh, transcriptions from sales calls, right? So what we can do is we can somehow cluster this text into a bunch of topics. And then this topic that comes out of our clustering algorithm could be this weak label, right? So that could be one of the sources. Mm, what about uh, different heuristics? Like if we see a word, like a certain word, then we think it could be like, I don't know, this label. Is it also like a good source of weak labels? Yes. So this is exactly the type of programmatic mm -hmm. labeling functions that's, that Snorkel, for example, allows you to create. And, and there are some other tools okay. as well. Or you can even, you can roll this somewhat yourself as well. Personally, I've, I've rolled it before I knew about Snorkel myself. I think a good example to understand this better is, is maybe uh, BioNLP. So when you're developing a drug, you're looking for a particular drug that treats a particular disease. So if you find a sentence that has a drug and a disease entity in it, and the verb in it is treat, for example, then that's a good candidate for having, for example, you know, then you're like, okay, this drug treats this disease based on this document. So that's one way you could actually generate this type of label. Mm -hmm. You know, you can take this quite far and, and then you could maybe do things more, a more fuzzy version of this. If there's a verb and a drug and a disease, but then you're obviously going to get a lot less lower quality because maybe it's, it doesn't treat it. Maybe that's what the sentence is saying if it's a PubMed abstract, actually, or that it has negative side effects or something like that. And this is the kind of fuzziness in it and how well you specify these labeling functions. So this is why I think it's, it's quite important. What Snorkel brought to the table, I think, as a, as a user, was having this, this kind of type of clever weighing mechanism on top of these labeling functions. So there you could define them both as like, does it contain this string? You could use all of these uh, spacey linguistic features like name entity recognition, I don't know, part of speech tag, et cetera, like all of these type of things. And then you also have a layer on top of this that can weigh that for you. So to make sure that it's you're getting the best bang for buck and like low quality labeling functions aren't pulling you down. So you mentioned two tools. You mentioned Prodigy at some point and you mentioned Snorkel. And so what are the... Other options, or one of these two is already enough to get started? So personally, if I was starting out now, and I would just be doing my first kind of proof of concept project, I would start with Prodigy. Because I think Prodigy has a really good user interface. It integrates very well with Spacey because it's created by the creators of Spacey. So 
it has a very nice user experience. And so it has these hotkeys and, and everything. So it's, it's just a pleasure to use. I think Dokano is a quite good open source alternative or uh, labeling studio. Th- those are both open source alternatives to, to Prodigy. They both allow you to do active learning, actually. Um, and for uh, distance supervision, I would recommend Snorkel, probably. So Snorkel has an open source version of their tool, which they aren't developing actively anymore as they've moved into enterprise development, but it's still usable. And I think it's, it's a good entry point into, into distance supervision because it, it has a nice interface that allows you to do to find these labeling functions and see their, their impact. Another tool there, an open source tool that has less powerful uh, distance supervision features, but is, I think, quite inspired by it, is Rubrics. But I, I haven't used that myself. And I, I just skimmed it, actually, and it looked like a, a similar alternative to Snorkel. If anybody watching this has some experience with Rubrics, please message me, because I'd really love to learn more, or if you, you have uh, more alternatives there, because I think this space is kind of blowing up now. It's becoming extremely important, and I think this can be a large competitive advantage when you're creating your data set. And uh, we have a question from the audience, which is actually similar to one of the questions I prepared for you. So uh, what we talked about here, how would we take this and apply to career transitioning? So, for example, somebody wants to change career to become a data scientist, for example, and they are building a project portfolio. So how should they go about this? Because uh, like one thing you can take a project from Kaggle. Right. And then it's a ready CSV file. Somebody already put effort in collecting this data. So you just use pandas, read CSV, then you use logistic regression fit, then you just use predict and here you go. This is your project portfolio, right? Like everyone has these projects. But very few people actually work on collecting data sets. Very, very few. And this could be like a good way to get noticed, right? So how would you suggest uh, people can do this like how can we they use these things and do it in their project if i put on my hiring manager hat just for for five seconds i would love it if a candidate would tell me about their data set creation experience or they would be like hey this is a data set i've created i think that would be mind-blowing and to me that would put them into a way more mature category than I would think they were uh, way more valuable than an entry data scientist, for example, an entry-level data scientist, because this type of conceptual thinking and thinking that the data, the data is expensive to create and it's valuable to create it well, that type of maturity would be hugely, hugely valuable for me, taking off my uh, <laughs> hiring manager hat. I think if I was starting out on a project like this, the most important thing is to actually do something. So in machine learning, there's millions of tools. There's so many things you could do, so many documentation. There's huge information overload going on. So my key suggestion would be just start doing something. And it can be good if you do it in a kind of more simple way initially, and it's more painful or something like that, because you will want to do it in a better way then. But I think it's really important to just have a project, make it a simple project, but maybe something that's of interest for you and where you may have some competitive advantage. So if you're the main expert, and you are probably the main expert in in some areas, then you should make a data set using that domain expertise. Then the next thing I would suggest is select your stack and just stick with it. So I think personally, if, if you would start out now for a beginner, if you would do a project with Snorkel, it would be pretty strong way to distinguish yourself from most candidates 
And it could also teach you maybe how to use Spacey, do some of that like linguistic pre-processing as well, and learn a little bit of like computational linguistics through that. So as somebody who works out in NLP, I think you know all of these things would be extremely good signals. But if you use a more simple tool, let's say Docano or Label Studio, and you and you create a data set like that, I would still be quite impressed with that project. So I think people who, who work through something like that, it's very impressive because it's a huge amount of the cost basis is there. As we're seeing that more, more and more modeling is, is becoming a commodity and, and anybody can kind of plug and play transformers, for example, to get to some kind of baseline, you need to think about where do you provide the competitive value that there's a lack of in the market. And I would say data creation expertise is something that we kind of need more of. And we kind of need to have more discussions about these type of things because it's it's less sexy. In a way, I'd say it's a lot of fun to train a model and it's hugely rewarding when you finally have your model and it's making some good predictions and you you, you see the, the pleasure that it gives to your users. Very rewarding. But building the data set to do that is also very rewarding because without this, you wouldn't have gotten there. You know, so I think it's really important to frame this narrative around like, you know, let's talk more about data set creation and and make it also cool. Maybe it won't be as cool as very fancy machine learning models, but hopefully it will get a bit cooler. And uh, like in my personal experience, you can just start using IPython widgets, like widgets in Jupyter Notebook. It's super easy to start with to like, it's not uh, as advanced as, I don't know, Snor- Snorkel or Prodigy, but if you need, like, I don't know, it's a binary classification case, then you can quickly get uh, like a few hundred examples just from using IPython widgets. So if you like IPython widgets and you're more of a beginner, but if you know what IPython is, then I would suggest the FastAI course because the whole FastAI mm-hmm. course takes this idea of using IPython to crazy, crazy levels to the next level <laughs> in every way. And it can be a great kind of structured way of building a project where you will have a data set creation and modeling piece on your own for your own domain, but getting guidance throughout the process for free. So. Uh, that would be my suggestion on, based on that. We have uh, a few questions. Maybe what I will do, I will suggest you two questions and then you will pick up the one you want to answer. So the first question is about dealing with GDPR because like we can have sensitive data. How do we present it to annotators? And then another question is about different languages that Comptura can capture and what are the different challenges with working with various languages? Or if you have time, you can answer both. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll answer them both. Good. <laughs> the first question was around GDPR compliance. So, so actually, mm-hmm. GDPR, I think, is another great reason to, to favor in-house annotation, actually, because crowdsourcing has a huge amount of kind of compliance risk in there, potentially in, in you leaking uh, personally identifiable data. So there's a number of kind of anonymization techniques that I've used as well to try and, and blank out like locations, names, phone numbers, credit cards, other personally identifiable information. But these algorithms usually aren't perfect and some data leaks through. Like identifying names, working at Resolver, I realized there's a huge amount of different names that are not standard at all and are extremely difficult to actually capture. And often they're typed with small letters as well. And it can be a very, very tricky thing actually. So personally, I think this is a huge plus for in-house data annotation and managing, because then you can manage the, the sensitivity of the data way better. With regards to, to what languages Comptura can support, at the moment, we only support English. But you know, if you're interested, uh, get in touch with me 
on one of the channels that is, is shared. And I'm happy to have, have more of a chat about whatever language you're interested in applying Comptoresi. You're Hungarian, aren't you? Yes, I'm half Dutch, half Hungarian, actually, but I, I grew up in Hungary. Yeah, and uh, I'm asking this because I know I haven't studied Hungarian, but I know I heard that this is an extremely difficult language to, like, for a foreigner just to learn. And like I imagine that for NLP tasks, it's also quite tricky, right? Because of the grammar, because of like uh, the linguistic properties of the language. Have you worked with other languages apart from English? I have done some extremely minor work with Hungarian, actually. Actually, Hungarian is in many ways easier than English. So mm -hmm. one of the things about English that is quite difficult is there's a lot of morphological ambiguity. So when you have a, a word written in English, it doesn't really give you a good idea about how to pronounce it, right? You can pronounce the same vowels in, in quite a few different ways. But in, in Hungarian and I'd say more sane languages, if you have something written in some way, it gives you 100% knowledge on how to pronounce it. You will be able to read it and you won't need any additional information to be able to read the word. So that's one benefit. And the other one is, well, this, this is, is a bit more around tokenization. So, so Hungarian uses is an agglutinative language. So, so all the linguistic information is stored at the end of, of words in general. While English will, you know, use prefixes and, and suffixes potentially, but mainly prefixes to, to kind of load up the linguistic information. So what is a challenge is potentially how do you tokenize your, your strings to capture that information? But actually, uh, transformer models, I believe, do work in Hungarian as well. And they can learn these suffixes and the linguistic information. I'm assuming this is due to the word piece level tokenization that's going on there, but I, I haven't looked into this extremely deeply. But uh, surprisingly, NLP in Hungarian works quite well. The, the thing that makes it less advantageous is, is Hungary is quite a small country, so only 9 million people. So the impact of, of uh, Hungarian NLP is, is more limited than English-speaking NLP. Mm -hmm. So that's the main reason, right? So it's just how common the languages, how many yeah. people speak it, right? Mm -hmm. And then I remember I came across a tweet recently um, that in Pacific Ocean, in phrase, phrase Pacific Ocean, all the C's are pronounced differently, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it do doesn't happen in Hungarian, does it? No, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't. I think many languages are morphologically kind of more stable, I'd say, so, than English. So actually English, mm -hmm. English is not an easy language in many ways, uh, I'd say. So... <laughs> Okay, thanks a lot for staying a bit longer with us and answering questions. And thanks everyone also for asking questions. Yeah, thanks for sharing your expertise with us. And I guess, yeah. So we have your contact information. We'll put this in the description. There is uh, somebody asking to connect with you on LinkedIn. So we'll share all the information, definitely. And I guess there are not so many Christian Swartz on LinkedIn. Yeah, my LinkedIn username is Christian Swart with, with two A's, actually. So that's the Dutch way of spelling Christian. And my startup is called Comptura. So I think if you put in my name and Comptura, you should get a hit for me. If you struggle to, to get in touch, I have a blog that's at useml.net and you can get in touch with me there. So if, if anybody uh, struggles in another way. Alexa, thank you for you know conducting this interview. It was a real pleasure. I think this community that you're building is is awesome, and I think the the work that you're doing with this is is really cool. So 
I'm really happy that I could be part of it for an interview. And I'm always looking forward to seeing, you know, what, what you're up to. Thank you for your kind words. Okay. Well, I guess we will um, just conclude on this. So everyone have a great weekend. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, Chris.